Welcome back to Cyber Context, the podcast featuring Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. I'm Christian Whiten. Jonathan, uh, you hear a lot about what might candidly be described or uh, described in brief as a cyber Pearl Harbor that, you know, we see all of these threats uh, occurring in cyberspace. It's very hard to get policymakers to understand, to go deeper than just a bumper sticker on, on what they are. But people are familiar now with things like ransomware, uh, where, you know, in particular, like a hospital or, or something sensitive like that loses access to files, has to pay up a bunch of cryptocurrency. We're familiar with attacks on companies. Uh, going back, again, this is sort of ancient history, but Sony Entertainment uh, being hacked by the, the North Koreans, uh, familiar with corporate espionage, with sort of government espionage, but is there a threat that this might all come together in some cyber 9-11 that in the first moments of a conflict with China or with Russia, that uh, what's the worst case scenario? Satellites stop functioning, uh, nuclear reactors, up come the control rods and they melt down. You go to an ATM, it doesn't work. Your bank is empty, your brokerage account. Um, so I get the question, uh, and it's a big question is, is this, this concept, this idea of a strategic cyber threat real or is it, is it being hyped? Are we thinking about it uh, the wrong way? Well. I would definitely come down on that it's not real and it's a lot of hype. I mean, I think that there is certainly way, you know, or, or, or if there is strategic cyber threat, it's not the way we think about it at all. Right. Um, so I think to take it on, on the no side is Pearl Harbor. You know, what, what do you, what do you mean by a cyber Pearl Harbor in the first place? Like cyber Pearl Harbor was an event that caused a huge loss of life. And the loss of a significant uh, part of the Pacific fleet, right? So, if we're talking cyber polar harder, we should talk about something that means a significant long-term loss of capability in a single event and significant loss of life. And I think it's really hard to come up with an example of something that would happen that way. Now, are there risks that could happen? You know, could uh, you know, could a cyber attack on a plant put it into a, you know, um, unsafe situation? Could you have a, a chemical disaster that causes injury? Like all these things, these things probably could happen. Are, are they likely to happen? Are, are, the, are we near the edge in the balance of that? I, I think there's little evidence. So that's true. And in fact, there's some counterfactuals, right, is that uh, you know, the Ukraine was for all for, for it, all it looks like from the outside, the cyber testing grounds for Russia for several years. Right. And they managed to to have in the dead of winter, take out the power to a major city. For a few hours. Right. Mm -hmm. So. With there, you know, this the, the most of the critical systems we depend on have safety built in. And where the they may be able to come over some of those overcome some of those safety systems, you know they have not we've not seen a demonstrated case where capability has been denied for an extended period of time, let alone permanently damaged. So I think, you know, in terms of that from that loss of capability standpoint, I think we've seen attempts and they haven't failed and they failed, you know they failed for long term impacts and. The number of places where I think you could see a real loss of life is also, uh, it's not clear where that would be for large scale loss of life. That's really largely due to a cyber attack. 
So I, I think from that context of putting it in that framework, that that no, there couldn't be a cyber. Uh, we don't have evidence there could be a pearl, uh, a, a cyber pearl harbor. Right. You know, you know another interesting way where we were we were taught um, about Pearl Harbor, uh, especially the way it's taught to most Americans. <laughs> it sort of depends on how you divide American history. Uh, sometimes if you're doing it all in one semester in elementary school and high school, uh, whether or not you get through World War II or not, there's a funny Simpsons where it's summer break and the kids are all running outside and goes, wait, kids, I didn't tell you who won World War II. And he goes, we did. And all the kids go, yay, USA, USA. <laughs> the way Pearl Harbor is often taught is that it was a total surprise and, and that we were thinking war was coming with Germany, that FDR was preparing the country for that. In fact, everyone in the military knew that war was coming in the Pacific. And people just thought it would start in the Philippines, which was a U.S. colony at the time, or someone, somewhere like that. There's this whole thing, War Plan Orange, that was ready to go. Um, they did attack the Philippines, the Japanese, the Imperial Japanese. It just happened the day after Pearl Harbor. And I wonder if it's if it's um, if if that factor could be at play here, where we actually do have a handle on the threat. But maybe we're focusing on something a, a little bit different. The idea that I mentioned before of, of uh, the electric uh, utilities being affected um, or banking or that it would be a ransomware attack. Do you think that if, uh, let's say, there's not a, a cyber Pearl Harbor, but there's something you know that in addition to Russia moving on Ukraine or China moving on Taiwan, that there's a cyber element? Is it going to be centered around ransomware and attacks on infrastructure? Or do you think if you know if you were designing this attack, would you focus on something else? I mean, I I, I think that from from my limited expertise in uh, warfare, let alone cyber warfare, right, is that cyber seems like far more of a tactical component to a you know larger strategy, right? Maybe you set off a bunch of alarms uh, in one area of town so you can attack another, right? Maybe you, if you can, if you can deny communications for a number of hours, you can confuse your adversary and make it harder for them to respond. But those are tactics. Not it's not a strategic. It's not a strategic attack, right? We're not going to take out the banking system, a la. Um, uh, Mr. Robot, and everybody's all money disappears, right? That's that is a I, I don't see a path to that scenario. Um, so, so I think again now, and I think now maybe if we think about strategic initiatives differently, that you can see that, right? And I think a lot of it has to do with the way the West um, is, you know, or really the U.S. is thinking about cyber versus China and Russia. And now I'm not an expert in this field, so I'm, you know, certainly uh, uh, reaching a little bit here and, you know, have, have limited knowledge, but it's to my understanding that, you know, where I, where I do understand the West, we have uh, generals standing up and wanting more lethal cyber bullets. And we, you hear our, our brass talking about, you know, outmaneuvering the enemy in cyberspace and all of these kinds of things. <laughs> Where they want it there, where we are generally as doctrine thinking about cyberspace as a theater in which you maneuver. Where, as I understand that in China and in Russia, they don't think of it as a space. They think of it as the information sphere. They think about it as 
um, data processing and data. They don't think about it in terms of a geography. And so they have a very different way of thinking about cyberspace than we do. And so I think that leads to some things. And then I think the other component is that, you know, especially in the case of Russia, is they very much think of, you know, they think of it as a form of population control, right? You can win a war by destroying your enemy, by causing them an inability to supply themselves, or by, you know, affecting the will of the people to support the war, you know? And I think that we have some pretty good evidence that, that Russia is quite advanced at affecting the will of the people in this country. Uh, and I think in some ways, if there is a cyber strategic attack, it's a social one and not a not one that takes out infrastructure. That's that's a really interesting point. Um, you know, and, and, and earlier about what you said about the United States, sort of the way generals talk about this in admirals, almost as if it's a physical space. That's sort of a habit we have in the U.S. Of if there's a problem, you know, if it's a minor one, maybe you could have a blue ribbon commission, which is the most important time of commission. But going beyond that, you know, setting up a new military command. And so um, it was, I believe, in the 2010s, if not a year or two earlier, we set up U.S. Cyber Command as an extension of the NSA. And it's very reassuring. You see people who are, um, you know, in camo utilities sitting behind computer screens in what looks like a mini NORAD. And you think, great, this is good. These guys are on it. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I do wonder if that is you know, <laughs> a failure to appreciate what's going on. I mean, there's also, I guess, a legal uh, difference in that. Um, you know, we've talked about the difficulty of retaliating that if the Russians attack a U.S. hospital or hospital system, it's actually very difficult and unlikely we would turn around and do that to a Russian hospital because I mean, that's sort of outside of, of the law of war or in violation thereof. I, don't know, I guess what I'm asking is, um, you know, going further into the way the Chinese and the Russians uh, think about this differently, you know, have they set up equivalents of, of cyber command or, 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 or do you think we have thought about it incorrectly and just saying, oh, this is the military, let's have the military as the part of the government that knows how to do things, um, well, let's give it to them. I guess I, I don't know how, what their doctrine is and rules of engagement. Um, you know, I think they have... As much as there's a bit of blending in the U.S. and the West and, and um, you know, Israel, um, well, Italy, uh, some examples of, you know, hacking team and NSO group. And I think there are U.S. contractors as well who can have offensive cyber capabilities. Um, I think that that is far less developed in the, than the way it operates in some other countries where there's a lot less, there's a lot more blurred lines between military, corporate, and even criminal um, efforts. Where that that sort of it's a spectrum rather than different types of operations is from my understanding. Again, we're we're a little outside of my domain of expertise here, um, but but you certainly see there they you see the same apparently same threat actors one day uh, hacking uh, in ways that appear to be aligned with the state and the next day stealing money. Um, so, you know, it, it really implies that that sort of that, that blending. 
Um, I, I think there is also a lot more emphasis, I, as I understand, in China on producing native capabilities for offensive cyber than there are in the US. We're very focused on defensive. Um, and offensive cyber is really in the realm of almost entirely in the military and maybe some military contractors, um, where it is, you know, the, the offensive cyber capabilities in the US are largely, I mean, that it's not, this is not true completely. There are, there are cobalt strike is an example of things like that. It's red team based stuff or researchers or independent thing. It's things it's, and I think the, the scale that is happening in China really out, you know, classes what we're doing these days. I mean, if you look at their, um, hacking competitions and the number of zero days, some, a team will blow to win a competition there. And how many different teams come to these competitions with, you know, these, you know, uh, weaponized exploits to, to win these competitions as compared to what happens in the U.S. that we are not the leaders in exploit development by any means. I don't know if that's exactly an answer to your question. Mm -hmm. um, My question was pretty vague. So that was a good, that was a good answer, I thought. Um, <laughs> why? Uh, that's so interesting. First of all, with the, uh, you know, it would be a lot easier to recruit for the NSA if you could say, listen, during the day you're working for the government, but at night you can steal from people. Uh, <laughs> that, would, that would be very lucrative for, for some people. Hacking competition, I think a lot of people, a lot of senators, generals would be interested that hacking competitions in China are way ahead of us. I mean, we're the open society, the creative society. Um, <laughs> we can well, we kind of, you know, along with the Brits, I, invented these things. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a lot more people there, and mm -hmm. that the state has invested heavily in education in that area, right? I, I, it is my vague understanding that you know you can go to college to learn to hack roughly. Like I think I'm being a little hyperbolic there, um, and you will, you know, have that. Then you'll spend the next however many years working for the PLA and, uh, you know, wait, that's not the wrong one. Fuck PLA, isn't it? Whatever. You know, for it's sort the, of all the, the PLA, isn't it? Even the Navy is under the PLA. Yeah, I guess there. so. <laughs> Whatever. You'll, you'll, you'll spend, you'll spend your, your time working for the PLA and then you'll go out into industry um, after that. And, you know, there, there is a progression there, but it's, it's institutionalized there, I think is the difference. Um, and they've got a big population. You know, they, they've got an institutionalized program uh, and a larger population um, and a lot of exploit development is just hard hours at keyboards, you know. It's interesting you say with uh, going back to Russia and the idea that it would be more of a social attack. It sort of always takes us by surprise that Russia and the Soviet Union before us, are they're really good at communications, at what you might call political warfare. Uh, in the early days of the Soviet Union, before World War II, you had the Comintern, which was in charge of exporting um, global revolution. That became a touch embarrassing when they were allied first with, uh, well, sort of in, in non-aggression with the Nazis and then allied with us. And it's uh, embarrassing if, if you're going to war with someone and also saying you want to depose them. So it morphed. But, um, you know, what the KGB called active measures, in which I assume still survives in the FSB and the SVR in Russia, 
Um, and, you know, we did see this, of course, and have seen this with Russian involvement in U.S. elections. Um, but a social attack from, from Russia, do you think, is that as, as simple as manipulating social media? Or do you think it's much deeper and more sophisticated? I guess I'm not sure that those are that, that those are different statements. I mean, the the subtlety that they're able to use social media, I think, is is pretty deep. Um, and I guess I, I I'm not sure what you would imagine is more deeper and nuanced there. I mean, I guess they are they are having an influence campaigns through other governments and other actions and things like that and other cultures. But I, I guess I, I don't quite understand the question, I would say. Well, well uh, I think, you know, you've met, what do you think if, if, if a Russian cyber attack, even if it's not Pearl Harbor, it's just a component of an overall attack that has kinetic elements, political, economic, you know, a whole of government approach to warfare. Um, yeah. I just, if uh, I think you had alluded to maybe that not being, focused on infrastructure that it may instead be focused on what for lack of a better term might be hearts and minds am i wrong about that maybe i'm no, I, I don't know i mean i think yeah. that, that that may be what may what, what i think i meant is that that you know that, that i think there are ta- there may be tactical uses for cyber right uh mm-hmm. in, in terms of like you know you set up the alarms in one place so you can attack another mm-hmm. I, I don't know that that's the best one i'm sure there are lots of tactical that's a great uses, idea the the argument is is there a you know is there a strategic use and it's, I was arguing that if there is strategic use it is uh, you know through propaganda and manipulation not through uh, cyber pearl harbor right where where capabilities are denied and lives are lost you know it's it's misinformation it's or it's you know, leaking the right things. I mean, you look at Lucifer too, right? Who was trying to influence the election and was, you know, you know, well accepted to be FSB and was leaking things at just the right time and uh, leaking documents which were mostly stolen, but a case, but also had um, falsified documents mixed in with that. You know, I think it's they they it is. So I guess I guess that's not just social media, I suppose. That's that's using mainstream media as well and leaks. So I, I guess the answer to your question is yes. Um, but I, I'm, you know, right. Well, I wonder if you could also create, you know, a, a t- even if you can't lift the control rods out of a nuclear reactor by hacking it, since I assume those aren't connected to the internet <laughs> at all. Hopefully, um, you can if you can spread misinformation that that might be coming, or even if you can just sort of knock out the power going into a nuclear reactor for a couple of hours. So it has to scram just, uh, you know, based on safety, then, you know, that would potentially, even if, if uh, not a single carrier of radiation leaked, you would, you would, yeah. you would get a lot of people's attention. And, and or, or you could convince significant to, you know, uh, a, a third of the population that the election was rigged or all sorts of other things like that, you know, uh, I think there are all sorts of ways that you could manipulate the population and, and destabilize your adversary. You know, you don't even need to take them out. Like, you know, if, you, if you think of like Russia's goals, right? Russia's goal is not to invade the U.S., right? Where it, Russia's goals are to gain advantage in um, 
you know, other territories that are not the U.S. or Russia where they can meet their economic or political objectives. And if you can destabilize the U.S., which they see as the, you know, the dominant economic and political adversary in there so that we are less prepared to engage in those economic and political battles outside our borders, then you're in a great position to win those. So, you know, just sealing chaos and destabilization seems like a pretty good strategy to me. Right. So now here's the big question. Have you seen Don't Look Up on Netflix yet? I have not. <laughs> well, Meryl Streep is the president. We're about to all be killed by 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 a comet, and she has uh, uh, there's difficulty convincing the public, in part because she doesn't want to. Anyway, it's it's I'd say it's worth seeing. There's some there's some uh, uh, elements of Doctor Strange love. It's not they don't pull it off quite as well because obviously there's no Peter Sellers, no Slim Pickens, no Sterling Hayden uh, as General Ripper, um, but uh, uh, it's it's pretty good. Um, you know, when you think about dealing with foreign threats, uh, if you're talking about the physical world where you can maneuver uh, in the political world, you think of allies. Um, and of course, the United States, we have our favorite allies. Britain, of course, is often usually the, the first go to for historical reasons. Um, so that could be a, a separate episode, whether that's uh, you know, wise today or as valid today as it was in the past. But um, does it make sense to think in terms of allies and, and, and when you're dealing with with um, you know a major strategic or tactical use of, of cyber against us? I'm not really sure. Right. I mean, as you sort of think, given your deep knowledge of software, I mean, we hear we sort of think of Western Europe, Japan, South Korea, uh, maybe Taiwan. Of course, that's more hardware. Uh, I mean, Israel a lot. It's so hard to know though because. You know, the supply chain is so hard to secure and understand. And we have some really deep advanced examples of both from our side and, you know, or against us and from our side of corrupting that supply chain. I mean, Crypto AG is notorious for being uh, own, uh, compromised by the CIA. And I think originally also <laughs> the Germans, uh, they, you know, they, they're, they provided state level hardware encryption, and you could trust them because Switzerland was neutral, but they were essentially set up or or deeply compromised by uh, U.S., you know, Western intelligence and were selling backdoor crypto to the Middle East. Um, and on the other side, you know, there are examples, you know, of Western technology being compromised and deployed and used against government, you know, Western governments, famously in Greece. The lawful intercept safe capability was not bought by the Greek telecommunications companies, and somebody else installed it for them and used it against the the Greek uh, political body. Uh, the you know the no bus backdoor that we that, that we apparently had Juniper install in their VPN product was somebody corrupted the source code and replaced the the keys so they had access instead of us. Um, so I think there's there's a long history of even if it's your friend, even if they seem like they should be friendly, they're very hard to trust. Um, so, I mean, certainly, you know, a, a company that is controlled by or heavily influenced by an adversarial foreign state is probably not one you want to buy technology from. But there is not great history with buying it from domestic companies or 
friendly countries that you believe you trust either because of the supply chain. The problem of supply chain security and technology is very difficult. Yeah, it sort of seems still to be the Wild West. It's interesting. Uh, so in our own government, correct me if I'm wrong, that cyber defense and offense kind of grew out of the NSA since you know those were the guys with the supercomputers, the geeks, the computer-heavy uh, people. I think actually time. it also has a lot to do with the fact that, well, now I may get these wrong because I haven't read about it recently, but I believe that espionage is under Title 70, and that allows them to operate anywhere in the world all the time. And I believe that, now this one is one I'm even less sure of, is that offense, you know, military actions are under Title 50, which have to be in a particular theater the, under, you know, some particular directive um, of Congress. And so it, I think it largely grew out of the NSA because they were doing it for espionage reasons and they could. They didn't need a, an act of Congress to go hack Russia, right? They didn't need an act of Congress to go hack Iran. They just did it. And they did it for, and, and now, and then this is where it gets messy because the, the act of putting in the implant for um, offensive purposes or espionage is exactly the same. It's what you do with the implant once it's there that changes. Interesting. And so there, there is, there is very little difference. And then there's also, and it, it gets all, all complicated because you know, uh, deconflicting is very hard because you know, let's say the, you know, the the Defense Department has gained access to some systems and they want to make a point by disabling them, and then the intelligence community says, "Hey, but we were using those to gain intelligence. Please don't do that." And how do you manage that conflict, right? So. Uh, I think historically, the reason we gained those capabilities in the NSA was because they were very technical and Title 70 allowed them to do it. And Title 50 didn't really give much room for the Defense Department to do anything because the Internet abroad is not a theater of conflict. And the way you wage, you know, actions in cyberspace is not to, all right, conflict start, let's start hacking. It's no, you spend the time and you're constantly finding holes and breaches and finding your way in so that when you want to take action, you're already there. Right. And if it's the NSA here, you know, we kind of think of the Brits actually as having more latitude in espionage since they uh, uh, depended on it more, since they taught us how to do it. Um, I assume it would be GCHQ over there that, again, would kind of be in the lead more than than the Ministry of Defense or other other parts of the, the I, government. I, I don't know enough about that. I mean, if there's no. evidence that GCHQ has capabilities, but I don't know how the rest of the government uses them. And I think that's maybe a difference, again, when you talk about China, right? They don't have that distinction. They don't right. have regulation that says, no, the military cannot take action unless, you know, the government has declared, you know, war in that theater or whatever, you know? Like, I, I know I'm not using all the, talking about the doctrine totally correctly, uh, but I think that the spirit of what I'm saying is correct. Right. No, you're absolutely right. And I mean, no one's briefing congressional committees over there. Uh, the uh, Presidium, I forget what the expanded uh, uh, vehicle, the rubber stamp parliament is called. And of course, we have a party Congress coming up just after the Olympics. It's going to be a big year for China. Anything else on this topic on your mind? The cyber Pearl Harbor, uh, probably not going to happen overhyped. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't think I, I don't think it is at all the way people are talking about it because yeah. of the fact that, you know, 
when you think about it, how long does it really take to recover from a cyber attack? I mean, I think you did, you did touch on something where I think there may be some, some difference. Um, and it's still probably not strategic. It will deny capabilities, but will come closer to the measure of, you know, I, I think there's more challenges on orbit because, you know, you can't go replace the servers on orbit, right? Access to space is one of the hardest things about getting, about operating in space is just getting there. You know, launch cadence and capability is limited, uh, more so than our ability to create interesting assets and operate them. So I think, you know, a loss of several capabilities in space could be bad, but at the same time, they're not all connected and global. So I think it's a lot harder for the adversary to do a sort of a mass hack, so to speak. Right. So it wouldn't um, be switching off the lights, but they could impede our capabilities. And theoretically, if Russia's fighting us in, in Eastern Europe, they could, even without satellites, or if the Chinese were after us in South China Sea. I mean, East China sea. I think if you, if you were to see a hot war between, you know, the, the West and China or Russia, I would not be surprised to see on both sides the loss of a lot of space capabilities, <laughs> right. um, whether it's through kinetic attack or through hacking, although lots of, you know, Geo is almost certainly going to be through hacking because it takes so much longer to reach. Leo, you may see more kinetic attack, but um, but I don't really know. We won't really find out. I mean, the, the I think that's going to change as we move forward. You know, historically, you know, satellites were sort of operated with the stovepipe model of security, where there's you know very integrated, fully owned, you know, uh, network, and their their the various assets are somewhat isolated from each other. You know, they certainly don't talk to each other very much. Um, uh, so I, I think that gives us some level of protection because there's a built-in compartmentalization. But I think as we enter this era of new space and of commercialization and proliferated LEO, uh, where you've got lots of satellite-to-satellite -satellite communications and you know cooperation and space 5G and all these things, uh, you know, I think that is going to shift a little bit. And it'll be really interesting to see how we handle the same threats where the risks are higher because satellites are designed to be flexible to recover from on-orbit faults and continue operation. But that same flexibility makes them in some ways more fragile uh, if that, that flexibility is used um, adversarially. And at the same time, the, you can't just go take the rack up new servers uh, when the, they get hacked. So I think we're, it's a little bit, that's, that's a, a future that's unfolding in terms of those capabilities as well as those risks right now. And I think it's it's sort of the time to try and solve those problems today. If if you think about the tens so satellites, mesh networks, tens of thousands of satellites um, being controlled semi-autonomously, or at least sort of a lot of the management and, and communicating is being done in space without a ground station. Is it right to think about this conceptually as maybe the kinetic threat to satellites is less overwhelming. I mean, it would be kind of hard to shoot down 30,000 satellites using a kinetic weapon, but the cyber risk is increasing. I, I, that is my intuition. I don't, I can't state that as fact, you know, and I think, I think one thing you say that is it's useful to differentiate um, uh, autonomous versus automated operation. Hmm. So if you look at a company like, um, like SpaceX and Starlink, those are automated operations in that for the most part. I mean, I, I don't know details of their operations, 
but you'll get other other large constellations. They tend to be automated operations where they it's a new regime. It's the traditional is that you have operators sitting in front of the terminals telling the satellites what to do. And autonomous operations, you have operators reviewing automated operational plans, but the executions are entirely handled by the machines. So the plan and but then that's distinct from autonomous operations where the machines are actually generating the mission planning as well. And we have limited experience with autonomous operations, uh, uh, moderate experience with the automated operations, uh, and that's where all the mega constellations are moving. But autonomy is is certainly on the horizon. You know, autonomy is going to be required for um, uh, space servicing. You know, at some level, you're going to have to be like, oh, you know, go replace the fuel tank, and it's going to have to look at it and make you know decisions on the fly. Um, and there, there is, you know, for government use, the desire to have autonomy, to have mission support so that you can, you know, have a group of satellites, you know, one make an observation, another one support that observation or do, you know, ed, you know, have data centers in space to do edge compute and deliver, you know, data, you know, actual data down to Earth directly to somebody who can use that data. Like, I mean, and I think one of the use cases you could potentially see is something in the news is, a lot these days is hypersonics. And, you know, with the time of flight of a hypersonic, if you detect a hypersonic launch from orbit, you don't want to be waiting until you pass over a ground station and downlink the data and have an analyst look at it and make a decision and then try and get that, that data product to a general who's going to make a decision and send it to like a carrier group or something is going to try and shoot it down, right? Now you're going to have to see that thing and, you know, uh, take action on it right away. And there may be only one or no humans in the loop there. Um, so I think that that's where we're going to, another area, we're going to see this this autonomy as well. Um, well. Hopefully it's just not like the Terminator in space with the automation. Although, I don't know, I for one welcome our, our new automated robotic software. Uh, over I, think, I forget who it is, whether it's Lockheed or, or North Agreement, but somebody is, it has a effort they're calling Skynet. And I, I, I'm pretty sure they should have realized that their one job was not to build Skynet. <laughs> Hopefully they don't, they don't call it that at least. No, no, they uh, did. That's what I'm saying. Oh, that's what oh, they, they did. Okay. Skynet. <laughs> that's just uh, a lack of understanding of 80s movies. I mean, kids today. Um, well, uh, well like we are living in the cyberpunk dystopia of the 90s. So <laughs> I think right. we should be real careful of what we uh, build. <laughs> learn from Hollywood, learn from Hollywood. All right, well, several issues put into context by Jonathan Moore, the Chief Technology Officer of Spider Oak. That's all the time we have for this episode. If you like listening as much as we like making it, please subscribe to the podcast or maybe leave us some nice comments over at Apple. We'll be back again soon with another episode. Thanks.